Hello, everyone, and welcome to another episode of Fully Automated, an Occupy IR Theory podcast. This is our fifth episode, and on this week's show, we have Douglas Lane, the publisher of Zero Books. Doug is a longtime veteran of the podcasting scene. I've been listening to him for years. I'm super excited to have him on this show. Uh, Diet Soap, his first podcast, ran from 2009 to 2014. Today, he is the voice behind the Zero Squared podcast and also the presenter of the Zero Books YouTube channel, where you can find a number of fascinating video essays exploring a diversity of topics that I think listeners to this show will really like. Uh, listeners to Doug's podcast will already know him to be a great interviewer. The goal in this interview, though, is to try to get Doug out from behind the mic, so to speak, and to try to get to know him a little bit better, uh, to try to capture something of his theoretical world. So, as his YouTube video channel will attest amply, uh, Doug is fascinated by capitalist culture and the idea that we have become, uh, for want of a better way of putting it, kind of frozen in time. Now, this is an idea that he borrows from Mark Fisher, among others. Um, So what does it mean to be stuck in capitalism in that sense? Well, uh, really, I suppose it means that we're stuck in a culture, uh, a culture of hyper-individualistic narcissism, uh, where we are doomed to live in a constantly rebooting celebration of capitalism's self-image, and where we literally can't imagine a world that is in any way fundamentally different to our own. In the interview, we discuss um, Doug's YouTube videos, but I think the focus of the interview, interestingly, is going to be how this capitalist narcissism is actually playing out in leftist online culture. So to that end, we're going to address, uh, number one, how podcasting has enabled a new debate among the left concerning the priority of identity. Two, the rise of the alt-left and whether or how that term might function to smear those seeking to reassert the priority of revolutionary values in leftist discourse. Three, uh, we're going to address the critical reception of Angela Nagel's sensational new book, Kill All Normies, which was published by Zero Books this year. Um, Many of you listening to this will already know about the book. Uh, You'll know that it's a book ostensibly about the emergence of the alt-right, but in this conversation, I kind of want to get Doug to focus in on the other main aspect of that book, which is Nagel's explanation of the rise of call-out culture on the left. Finally, then, uh, we're going to divert a little bit from the main topic of the show to have a little conversation about the upcoming 2017 Democratic Socialists of America convention, which is starting later this week. And I asked Doug if he has any advice for delegates to the convention. So I hope you'll Stick around and listen all the way through uh, for that, especially if you're going to the convention. I'm going to be there, and I look forward to to meeting you if you want to have a talk about something you've heard on the show, or if you have an idea for future episodes, or if you just want to talk about DSA-related issues. Uh, Now, before we get to the interview, I just want to note quickly that Doug is also a novelist. His books include uh, the novel... After the Saucers Landed, which was published by Nightshade Books. His next novel is Bash Bash Revolution, coming out from Nightshade Books in March of next year. And he tells me um, it's going to be an effort to explore the idea of augmented reality as a means for replacing capitalism. So we'll hope to have him back on the show to discuss that novel when it comes out. So on with the show. As ever, if you have any feedback... Uh, you can reach out to us on Twitter at Occupy IR Theory. Um, well, now, without any further ado, here's Douglas Lane. Um, Doug, thanks so much for coming on the show. Um, it's a great pleasure to have you here. I've known your voice for years, and it's um, it's a real thrill to be talking to you face-to-face, to be honest. Um, but you've been a veteran podcaster on the left scene for, for a long time. Um, your first show, uh, Diet Soap, ran from 2009 to 2014 today. You're the voice behind Zero Squared. And I think in that sense, it's safe to say you've been active through what I would regard anyway as sort of the two golden ages of podcasting. And of course, the older age, I think many would agree that it's kind of an avant-garde age. There was a lot of experimentation going on, 2008 to 2010. Um, 
today seems different. Uh, we are using a lot of terminology now, like dirtbag left and things like this. And the format seems to have opened up into a kind of a um, debate forum, kind of unexpectedly for uh, like a like an intra-left debate about the culture wars. I don't know if you have something to sort of say about the distinction between the two periods of, t- of podcasting, but do you think that there's something about the format that's driving the change? Well, it's an interesting question. You know, I was, I've been involved in podcasting since um, 2009, and it's, it's funny how fast time goes by because I, I don't really consider myself to be a veteran of podcasting because in my mind, I, I started late, I think, uh, but, but obviously I didn't. But, uh, you know, when I did start, there were many people who had already been podcasting for a while. And in fact, the, the big question on everyone's mind when I started was, is podcasting dead? There was all these articles, especially in 2010, mm. uh, asking, you know, is podcasting a format that's going away? Is this, is this going to last? Is video going to replace it? Um, and it didn't die. It, it just puttered along. Uh, mostly, uh, you know, there were some NPR kind of shows and BBC programs that, that just lived on in, in podcasting. And that was... Probably those were the more popular podcasts um, by and large. Right. Uh, what I always thought was, yeah, I went through a golden age, I guess, of podcasting. Didn't really see myself as benefiting from the popularity of podcasting. Uh, today, the, the podcast is bigger than it was certainly when it started. And it's grown, let's say, over the last uh, year mm. uh, by about a factor of three or four. Uh, it's grown quite a bit, but I, I didn't necessarily talk that up to the popularity of podcasting, but the resurgence of a panicked left, (laughs) you know? Yeah. Uh, so people are more interested in hearing from people like me about what's going on than they had been under, especially the United States under Obama. Um, as far as the, the, the format being particularly good for, like an interleft debate, I think it actually really is quite good for that. Mm-hmm. Just because um, what happens, what, the way I got started podcasting was I was listening to uh, this program called The Sea Realm. It's not a left podcast, but it's a kind of libertarian psychedelic podcast. Wow. And and it was um, done by a guy named Camo. That's his uh, internet name anyhow. Okay. And, and he's still doing his podcast he's he's a professional at it uh but what it was that made me interested is to discover first of all it's just a guy with a microphone he was not uh when i first listened to the program i thought oh what organization what corporation is putting this together and then i realized no it's just him and he he can really make a a professional sounding program uh just with a microphone and driving around in his truck um so uh, that made me excited uh, to try to do it myself. Um, but also he was con- part of kind of a network or a community of podcasters around the question of like psychedelic use and alternative uh, energy and peak oil and or uh, uh, permaculture and uh, quite a lot of progressive uh, but – relatively apolitical, uh, ideas. Um, so, uh, I got involved in that conversation. I was like the, uh, token Marxist, uh, in this little group, but constantly saying, Hey, you know, you're missing this, you're missing that. Trying to get into the conversation though, and offer another point of view and, and offer my own critiques. And that worked, Hmm. um, to a degree. I mean, I don't think I shifted the discourse very much, but uh, I, I gained an audience and and I participated in lots of podcasts uh, other than my own. And that that I think is what podcasting does. It, it can bring little communities of per, podcast producers together to have conversations on topics that they are mutually interested in. Um, so you get these little clusters of podcasts that are yeah. – are kind of talking to each other. Yeah. Um, that's maybe a little bit less so now because there's such a dominant 
pod, in Chapo Trap House right. is like striding across the earth. It's uh, <laughs> it's putting us all to shame. I don't know. It's it's got something like a billion listeners, yes. and um, all of them send like ten cents a month, and it, it makes their millionaires. Is my understanding. Um, but okay, that might be a little bit of a stretch. But they're doing very well. Yes, and. Um, so yeah, I, I'm not sure if there's as much of a conversation between the podcasts directly. Like I don't hear uh, Adam Proctor going on to Chapo Trap House to discuss their latest, their their a previous podcast and debate it with them, which is sort of what was going on pretty frequently in the, in the little psychedelic community. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and back in 2009, I would go on the C Rome podcast or. Uh, uh, the, some other podcast, um, and and say, hey, there was this show. We should talk about mm-hmm. what was said uh, two months, two weeks ago on on this other podcast over here. Um, so I'd like to see that kind of thing yeah. happen. I've been um, I've been impressed though by the sort of ability of someone like Adam, um, who's actually a, an old friend, but um, I well, I like Adam's show a lot. Uh, yeah, the to, to sort of go from um, you know being you know. A totally new show to actually getting quite a respectable audience in a very short period of time. I think through yeah. in a way by having like people like Katie Halper on and some very you know estimable guests. Uh, yeah, you know, it actually really ticked me off to discover him because I was like, <laughs> what, 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 "Why is everyone talking about this podcast that's got six episodes?" What? Yeah, what, uh, I've been doing this for eight years, and he's uh, you know right. more popular than my show. But then. I listened to a few episodes and decided he was all right after all. And yeah, uh, you have to give him, you have to give him his his props. <laughs> yeah, that's right. But back to your work and your show, I I really have to say, I think where um, your work really just um, shines is when you're in your YouTube mode. <laughs> your short format YouTube videos are really outstanding. Um, and obviously, like on the podcast itself, you've had great guests: uh, Oral Stevens, uh, George Kitcherill, Amar. Mm-hmm. Um, and we can get to those in a minute. I, I want to hear your views, but even bigger than that, like you've had big names on your show, like uh, Slavoj Zizek, and yeah. you've also been willing to take on what I think are really great, but admittedly more esoteric topics, like bringing Joanna Demers on. Uh, mm-hmm. I just love that show. It was one of the, I listened to that like three or four times. I, I don't know why. There was just something about it that was mesmerizing for me. Um but um, in your in your short videos on YouTube, uh, you've really sort of taken time to flesh out some fairly nuanced stuff about uh, Christopher Lash, Mark Fisher, um, and applying them and studying th- through the kind of case studies of Twin Peaks and Mr. Robot. You know, both of them are very popular television shows. And um, I think while most people know you as a podcasting interviewer, um, these uh, videos uh, are are fascinating because they seem to sort of you get up from behind the interviewer mic a little bit, and I think we start to see you fleshing out your own worldview, your own politics, your own perspective. Um, I was struck in your Mister Robot YouTube that you said uh, Mister Robot names the enemy. So maybe I could just get you to start from that point and maybe say a little about you know what you were trying to argue there about neoliberalism as a capitalist configuration. Uh, you say that it's the era that comes after Fordism and given that so many people differentiate between post-Fordism and neoliberalism, maybe there's something important for you in that. Well, okay. Um, my, I'm sort of flat footed when it comes to definitions of neoliberalism. Okay. Um, in so much as, uh, these fine distinctions like between post-Fordism and neoliberalism, Mm -hmm. I, I don't find them to be extremely meaningful. I, I, I actually think neo, neoliberalism is just simply uh, a reaction to the economic crisis of the 70s and that d- developed and continued. Uh, it's a way to try to get regulation and hindrances to capitalist development mm. and, and profit-making out of the way, yeah. um, a return to kind of classical liberalism, um, freeing up the market as much as possible, and then even beyond that, yeah, using the state to prop up uh, – uh, capitalist uh, enterprises, you know, right. subsidizing the more more important industries and and uh, that kind of thing. Sure. Um, but I also think that neoliberalism has become a term that we use in lieu of talking about capitalism. And that Mr. Robot uh, names name the enemy. Yeah, 
in a particular way, in a, in, in a way that uh, was very familiar to me as sort of a West Coast American, mm-hmm. um, especially uh, as a Gen Xer who could could vaguely remember the 70s um, uh, because it he said, oh, yeah, the the the, the problem is money. Yeah. Um, and, and, and they go through uh, this revolutionary activity where they try to get rid of money. They're, they're trying to undermine the entire monetary system. And, you know, they, they, they do symbolic acts like having a, a CEO burn like a, some millions of dollars in the park. Yeah. Um, but they're also undermining uh, the banks and, and they're, they're going to try to wipe out all the debt and Right. And the, the goal is to break capitalism, to, to break with capitalism by destroying what they see as the primary tool of capitalism, which is financial investment and in the, in the money system itself and currency. Um, and I don't think from Marx's perspective, I don't think that approach will work. But it's for a for, a, you know, like so I, I would and I'm kind of happy to watch. Mr. Robot and, and watch these revolutionaries fail on on the show and constantly come up against their own limitations right. and and get bogged down in the crisis that they're creating and 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 recognize that the crisis isn't uh, transformation you know uh, but but also though I yeah, should say I'm not I'm not critical of the show for getting not being Marxist enough or not sitting down and going actually let's read Capital Volume One. Um, because it is kind of pointing at uh, in in a general way at the at the issue at the main problem, which and, and saying that the economic system itself is the source of our misery, and that to me is at least a very good step, especially for a major American network yeah. television show. Or it's on. Um, I forget what is USA Network. So, mm. you know, it's a big show. Uh, so I, I'm really surprised by it, its existence. I loved watching it, and um, I'm looking forward to it coming out again. And I'm I'm really curious to see if a USA Network television program can really develop a revolutionary critique through this fictional approach or this yeah. televisual approach yeah it'd be really interesting um it, it's also going to be interesting to see like you know because they've they've collapsed capitalism twice now in that show in some respects and it's still right. there you know? right right uh how well, the other thing i wanted to mention is on on the videos um yeah. my and kind of developing my own voice yeah 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 uh, yeah <clears throat> you're absolutely right that the videos it's kind of a strange uh blend of promotion and my own rudimentary non-fictional left-wing essays. Because I'm assigned books to promote because the books that sell a certain amount or that are coming up about to be published that, you know, that we've selected um, need to be promoted. And this is one way to to promote Mm -hmm. the books. Mm -hmm. But I always find myself in this sort of ambiguous position of wanting to not only promote books, but engage with them. And that sometimes means like a new book will come along. I'm, I've decided I want to publish it. I think it's good. The author is, you know, talented, but at the, but my promotional video asks these sort of critical questions of the book, even as it promotes it. So, but I feel like that's the best way to do left wing, uh, uh, publishing and left wing projects is to never, uh, simply be a cheerleader, even for yeah. really good work. And I think what excites uh, people about about a book is often where it stands in a debate, right? It's it's situated in a discourse somehow. Uh, I think that's what would make people want to buy a book more than anything, you know? Yeah, yeah, that's certainly the case, especially when um, the discourse is well established and understood. A lot of what we publish, um, there is part of a discourse, there's a debate going on, but it's a debate often that's two or three steps down from what the mainstream of left thinking, liberal left thinking is de- debating. So like, for instance, Kill Normies, which I guess you're, right. you're I think we're going to get to yes. eventually is a book that doesn't take two steps down. It's, it, it's really, uh, offering a substantial, 
uh, critique of uh, issues that are not under the surface but are right there on the surface of our politics today. So I was really glad to have uh, that book uh, published by Zero Books and uh, to be able to have an entryway into into maybe deeper left politics through a critique of the current moment that that everyone can can grasp. Maybe right now, just to kind of go back to one of the uh, initial themes we talked about today uh, in the intro, um, mm-hmm. which of course is this idea of of the culture wars. And um, you've been doing some shows recently, including. Uh, on this topic, including one on um, the Evergreen State controversy. And I think for many people, in a sense, that's already old news and maybe not worth going back over it again. But I think maybe it's it's an interesting way of of trying to flesh out something about this new debate. And maybe it's an interesting segue into a wider conversation that will get us to to kill all normies as well. because Evergreen stands out, I think, for better or for worse, as really one of the recent major examples of the dominance of identity politics on college campuses. And so, I don't know, maybe just for unfamiliar listeners, could you just briefly outline your understanding of what exactly happened at Evergreen this spring and why it was specifically that you decided to interview uh, a professor, Pete Bomer. Who is Bomer and what was it that he was bringing to the story that you thought was worth doing a podcast episode about? Well, to start with the Evergreen State College, a story is a complex one that uh, has been reported on in um, less complex ways. So so the just the, 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 the brief outline of it, there uh, there was a tradition. There is a tradition at Evergreen State College, where um, people of color at the univer- at the college will take a day of absence um, in order to underline and demonstrate the importance of diversity on campus and the the vital role that people of color actually play in the in the academic community. Um, so it's sort of like a one day strike. Mm-hmm. Um, and this year, uh, a student organization, I think, or maybe it was, a um, a, a, a faculty, uh, run group, I'm not sure, but they, there was a decision made to reverse the day of absence and rather than people of color voluntarily going on a one day strike, uh, the request was made that, uh, so-called white people leave campus um, in order to demonstrate their allyship with people of color. Um, and that's my broad stroke understanding. And one particular professor, Brett Weinstein, uh, wrote an email, a private email to the faculty right. expressing, uh, his dissatisfaction with this reversal and offering some critiques of the reversal mm-hmm. that then got published um, I think in the student newspaper, uh, it got passed around and published in s- somewhere. I think it was a student newspaper. And that d- a month after the day of absence yeah. sparked a protest on, uh, of Brett Weinstein uh, right outside of his class. And there were demands for him to resign um, because he had been advocating white supremacy, they said, in his email. Now, mm. So that the the charge was ridiculous. The question of whether or not reversing the day of absence is justified, I would hold as an open one. Although my knee jerk reaction is to side with Brett Weinstein on that particular issue. Although I, I would need to think it through more than I've taken the time to. Yeah. Um, the the for me, you know, you said that a lot of people might think this is a, an issue that is old news already, and in terms of a, a media cycle. A news cycle, it is. Yeah. <clears throat> it's it's not going to sell newspapers anymore. It's not going to get a lot of clicks anymore. Right. Um, it's one. It's a story. I think that we're we would be remiss to just put aside, though, because by just putting it aside, there's no chance that we can change the dynamic that produces these kinds of moments. Um, and the real tragedy about what happened at Evergreen State College is that uh, efforts for racial uh, equality and for diversity on college campuses um, 
can now be presented as censorious um, and irrational in the major media. And I think, you know, un- really, unfortunately, rightly so. Yeah. Like we, there was, there, there, it was a mistake. It was bad ill judgment. thought bad through. Yeah. Bad strategy, uh, probably a bad politics and uh, at, at its base, probably not actually a left politics right. um, at, at the base of it. So, so yeah, so we need to can kind of hold on to these issues when they come up and these controversies when they come up and try to resolve them. And one thing I need to do is reach out to Pete Bomer again and mm-hmm. and because there was a talk at the end of that podcast that maybe there would be an event at Evergreen State yeah. College right. where someone like Cornell West might show up and discuss the importance mm-hmm. of academic freedom specifically for the left and specifically yeah. for the struggle for racial equality. Um, so, okay, so that's the that's the broad strokes of Evergreen State College. You asked me why I decided to talk to him particularly. Yeah, and it was Bomer, yeah. Primarily because he was available. I knew someone who was friends with him okay. um, and could reach him. Uh, also, I did want, if I couldn't talk to Brett Weinstein, I wanted to talk to someone on the campus. And I was interested in hearing from professors or anyone who supported the protests as they were from a supposedly left perspective. And I wanted to challenge uh, Pete uh, on, on, on his position to see what he, how he responded to the challenges. I, I happen to think that it was a particularly good episode in so much as I did challenge him without it becoming a shouting match uh, and without also letting him get away with very much, um, uh, you know, but you can always do every podcast you can do it better, but I thought that one went fairly well as far as it goes. Um, have you, I'm sure you have sort of been keeping track of Weinstein since then. Um, yeah. He's obviously uh, someone who in, in interviews will talk up his history as someone of the left. Yeah. And mm. um, I think that's fair enough. But since then, he's clearly gone on. A lot of conservative shows, internet shows, television shows, Tucker Carlson. Uh, I've seen him cropping up on the alt-right YouTube circuit as well. I just wonder, would you care to make an observation on whether well, that's acceptable or not? Okay, a couple of things. Brett is not actually of the far left. Okay. Okay, <laughs> you know, just ideologically, from what I've heard from him, his ideas are not uh, socialist. Yeah. Um, he is a, you know, maybe he's a democratic socialist, but he's not a socialist. Yeah. Uh, uh, so, I mean, I don't expect him to behave particularly differently than he has in these circumstances. Right. What, what we've got to understand is that the division between right and left looks a lot starker to people on the far left than it it is in this as you get into the middle of the political culture and also mm. um, we have a tendency to draw these lines for tribal or identity reasons rather than ideological reasons so okay so like you said he's been making the alt-right um, circuit on YouTube and I I would say he's made the he's been making the anti-social justice warrior circuit uh, on YouTube. That's a fair point. Yeah. Um uh he's not gone on any white nationalist YouTube channels and he won't, right? Right. Um, okay, he has he hasn't he hasn't actually gone to the actual alt right. He hasn't even gone so far as to go as far as I know over onto like the rebel or into Breitbart right. or anything like that. Okay. So so he so where is he? He's with uh, David Rubens and mm-hmm. Gad Sad and yeah and um, uh, other comedian um, uh, uh, Joe Rogan's show. It, that, that's just these are the sites where or the channels where they like to either always or at least some of the time talk about the phenomenon of so-called social justice warriors and make money off of the ludicrous things that go on in the name of social justice online. 
Um, yeah, and he's part of that engine now. I mean, there, this is a, a story that works really well in that in that terrain, and and yeah, he's allowed himself to be picked up and and promoted in that terrain, and probably partially for just pragmatic reasons. He's possibly going to lose his job at yeah. Evergreen State College, and the and Joe Rogan specifically said to him, "Look, if you decide to become an internet celebrity, I'll promote you." Wow. So this is a way for him to to do that. Mm-hmm. Um, and I don't really blame Weinstein for that. I don't think that it's not what I would do, right? I mean, mm-hmm. I, I wouldn't. I if I were to, I might go on some of these programs, but I would go on these programs and then talk about Marxism the whole time if I could get away with it. <laughs> um, would be able to get away, with it. <laughs> <laughs> right? So, I mean, so I wouldn't do that. I, I think he really is missing the boat by not going on. Like I've I've reached out to him, and I know that uh, Adam Proctor has, and yeah. I think it, it, you know, and here's something I would love for Chapo to try to get him on, but yeah, yeah, but, uh, I don't think they're likely to, and we, you know, and for a couple of reasons, I think that's a hot potato for the left, for most left, uh, commentators, that Mm -hmm. particular issue, because it's so, so self-critical. Um, and if you have a big audience, you may not want to alienate a good portion of them by taking a stance on it. I don't, I don't care about alienating uh, my audience because I've been marginal for eight years and I, you know, I'm perfectly <laughs> comfortable with that. Um, so yeah, no, uh, uh, I guess what I'd say is, yeah, I wouldn't do what he's doing. I, um, don't think of him as being as a part of the left, despite what he says. But to me, that's not a very, relevant factor it doesn't really change my overall perspective on what happened at evergreen so okay doug now that we've talked about evergreen a little bit um maybe we can use that now to segue into the idea specifically of an alt left or what some people call a dirtbag left um i know you you've you have used the term alt left in, in some of your videos and Earlier on, you said, uh, you know, part of the reason that podcasts were coming becoming popular again was because of the sort of uh, reemergence of an anxious left, and um, and these terms, alt right, or sorry, alt right, alt left, uh, yeah, dirt yeah, yeah. left. Um, I guess they're 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 neologisms, uh, yeah. <laughs> but uh, perhaps they're useful in the sense of helping us chart out the territory of this intra-left debate that seems to be afoot right now. Um, uh, the uh, It might help us understand, for example, the basic importance of liberal values in our organizing priorities. It, it, it might help us understand the extent to which we're committed to them. Mm-hmm. If the driving impulse behind the students at Evergreen could be described as grounded in new left values of the 1960s, focused on building a movement towards radical individual rights, tolerance, etc., um, this newer dirtbag or alt-left seems to be driven more by a nostalgia for an older left ideology. And I'm just thinking about recent articles by Jeet here in the New Republic or Andrew Hartman in the Washington Post uh, discussing the significance of millennials and their enthusiasm for Bernie Sanders, Jeremy Corbyn, Mélenchon in France, obviously the popularity of DSA. Um, is this a dichotomy that we're comfortable with what exactly is this alt left um can we overplay this distinction well sir yeah i think we could overplay the distinction um i'm not sure that it is the primary distinction that i would want to focus on um it's just you know i think of the first of all the the term the alt left is a smear um and it gets thrown around in all different directions so it actually doesn't like when I made my video on the alt left, someone came along and said, "Oh, the way you define the alt left as uh, these uh, anti-social justice warrior, anti-democratic party, uh, old school socialists um, is just the op- ex- exact opposite of how I've usually heard the term used." Really, I usually hear the term used. This is what someone in the YouTube comments said. I usually hear the term applied to uh, people who are focused primarily on identity politics mm. and on fallout culture. So. Look, the alt-left is just a way to associate leftists with the alt-right. And it's really – it's kind of sad because, you know, alt, which stands for alternative, shouldn't have a reactionary, you know, 
uh, definition, but somehow if you call yourself alt now, you are uh, aligning yourself with reactionaries. Hopefully we can grab the word alternative back sometime soon. Um, so yeah, so but the other thing is this, this distinction between people who are focused primarily on uh, tolerance or diversity or racial equality within this current political economic system of capitalism mm. and those who have a political economic critique of the current system um, is actually, I don't think, a primary distinction. I, first of all, I think that to a large extent, everyone on the left is struggling to try to deter- figure out how to get out from underneath the capitalist system itself, that no one has a very clear program or path towards true emancipation and that we're all to some degree or another constantly compromising with the reality of the system we're in. Right. So, um, so then, you know, it, it becomes, once you accept that, it becomes, uh, that the, accepting that fully might be just becoming defeatist. Uh, that's what I would like to resist. I don't think we should give up on, uh, developing that path out of the capitalist system. And and so for me, the distinction to be made is between those who believe that we can still have some sort of political economic revolution mm-hmm. in our future and those who do not. And I think that um, that distinction is, is more primary. Uh, I also think that if you look at the cut, you've got a very – in reality, there's very few who really fall – on the side and on for me it depends on the day of the week on the side of truly believing in revolutionary potential um so that's where i would i would still though that's where i'd want to draw the line and um given the given that that's the case then the then the question becomes okay so how do we move towards the building a path out of the capitalist economic system itself um rather than uh doing intramural politics within it. And I do think that a step away from the kind of identity politics that mm. is exemplified by someone like Hillary Clinton's and specifically by the way she ran her campaign um, is, is a necessary but not sufficient step towards being more serious about revolutionary change. Yeah. So in that way, I align myself with the dirtbag left, but yeah. but but that is not for me the most central alignment that I want to emphasize. That's to me that's just like step one in a step of a thousand steps or more. Well, maybe we can talk about another one of those steps then, because I think. Um Another trigger word that recently seemed to surface was uh, that of dominance. Yeah. And um, in this sense, I, I, I just wonder if you'd agree, based on what you've been saying a moment ago, um, that one of the reasons this debate is so heated right now is because there's actually really a ton of leftist intellectual capital invested in the question of dominance. I mean, um, I went through grad school learning Foucault, Derrida, Judith Butler, um, I regard these as sort of classically new left literatures in some respects, right? Um, mm-hmm. And I'm, I have my own feelings about them, and I we can talk about them another time. But you know, I recognize them as ostensibly leftist literatures, and they mm-hmm. come out of a context in the '60s and '70s where the left was justifiably uh, leery of the injustices perceived as being perpetrated uh, by the left in the name of political power or political dominance. So. Uh, maybe we can say a whole sort of political academic edifice has emerged around that caution, that that concern about political power. And that is, um, in a nutshell, trying to develop uh, a theory or to ask how society can be changed without taking power or without even trying to take power. And uh, I think we can see that that project has certainly chalked up a degree of success for itself, you know, especially in domains where progress can be measured in terms of social recognition or individual legal rights. 
I just wonder if today, in the wake of the 2008 financial crisis and the obvious sort of impact of austerity, the failures, the cruelties of neoliberal globalization, whether that's a project that now is starting to appear somewhat impotent, and then, ironically, the dominance of a politics of non-dominance is is actually now under scrutiny. Yeah. Well, a couple of this, a couple of interesting points that you made there. Um, I mean, like some things that I would want to pick apart. Mm-hmm. For instance, to the extent that there have been successes for the politics that seeks to avoid taking power, they've only come when there's been a failure to avoid taking power. In other words, any successes that have happened on the, in the realm of, say, individual rights or in the realm of racial equality has, have, has come from taking power, not all the power, uh, but mm-hmm. a, a some power, enough power to shape our legal system, say, enough power to pass legislation, enough power to even enough power to change some cultural attitudes. Yeah. All of that is, a, the, these things happen through the exercise of power. Um, so I, I think it's, I, I think that there's been a, a misunderstanding of why, why, why this issue of power has come up. Like the problem for the left was not in the 60s and before was not so much that um, the left had taken too much power and become authoritarian, but that the the left had, I mean, that happened, but the, the sure. left had misunderstood what was required, especially in the Soviet Union. There was a misunderstanding and a misapplication of power uh, in order on the, on the road to socialism. They, they there was never any move to break with capitalist production, uh, you know, which would include wage labor and and the ownership of the centralized ownership of the means of production. There's never any move to really break with the capitalist system. Hmm. Um, there was instead a, a thought that if you take the means of production out of private hands and put it into some institution which claims to represent the public – then you have created socialism, if not not communism. And I don't believe that's the case. Uh, I think in order to be, create socialism, you have to alter, you know, fundamental things like uh, the wage relationship. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, yeah, I think you would you would really stop uh, being led by the market when it comes to production. Not that you would eliminate the market, but it wouldn't determine what was produced or why it was produced right. even under socialism, but you know, before you get to what's called full communism, mm-hmm. uh, there, and there are different theories to how you do that. Uh, you know, Marx talked about labor notes. Um, I am, I don't know what would work, but I think that was the reason why there was such an obsession with powers because people thought, Oh, the, the difficulty was that the state became authoritarian and the state became too powerful and we need to resist that kind of political power because it's as oppressive as anything else. Right. Well, that's true in an extent, to an extent. But what the state was trying to do was um, play the role that the economy plays without actually changing the economy. So, like, it's trying to steer a ship. It was like it was trying to uh, be the cart pushing the horse. It, yeah. it was never going to work. Um but you know, you, you in the effort to do that, you accrue massive amounts of authority and power uh, to try to tackle this impossible goal. Yeah. So that's where that's what I see as the real problem for you know for the left and why authoritarianism is such a temptation is because we have a, a more a deeper difficulty that we still don't have a way to fully address. Do you think that um, um, are you seeing anything in in sort of these new current debates about about how that might can be achieved? I mean, we're, it seems that the you know we can talk a little bit about the the left today in America in the auspices of DSA or whatever. There's so much talk about UBI and things like this. Um, are we 
you know, is there, is there sort of a, a failure to learn old lessons here in some respects, do you think? I do. And I, you know, I'm really reluctant to be as critical as I am of people who I like for the reasons we've already gone over, right? You know, yeah. I do think that DSA and the so-called dirtbag left is are making the right kinds of decisions and are, are, are coming to the right kinds of conclusions about important things like mm. moving away from race essentialism and a sort of crass uh, um, racial politics and trying to build um, truly diverse uh, coalitions of based on solidarity ac- across racial lines. That's important to do. It's important to say, look, what what we are up against is uh, class exploitation uh, really more than any one of these different kinds of oppressions. Mm. That's an important thing to say. Um, and maybe I'm not even saying it particularly well right now, but the trying to discover universal projects and universal politics uh, is vitally necessary. Having said all that, I do worry that this return, I mean, I don't think it's very likely that we're going to see a a new Soviet Union in the UK or the US. Okay. But so I'm not really worried about that. But I do think that the emphasis on the state um, as an institution which can, can really steer the whole of the political economy this idea, this falsehood that's being sold, that the problems of the economy can be solved through state power, and that redistribution is will will right the ship. Um, th- I think these these are real errors, and I do think it re- repeats some of the 20th century errors, mm-hmm. and I do think there's a reluctance to. Uh, uh, to come to grips with the real difficulties that we have. And, and, and look, it's, it's always done in the name of pragmatism. I listened to Adolf Reed and, and Adam Proctor talk uh, yeah. recently on, yeah. on their podcast. And I'm, uh, you know, I really admire Adolf Reed quite a lot. And I like Adam Proctor too. I, I you know, as much as I know of, of him, I admire him. Oh. Um, but there was uh, this moment where they sort of dismissed critics that would say, hey, uh, what is socialism? Is this democratic socialism enough? Are we going to be staying within the capitalist system or not? Uh, What are the limits of trying to take state power? They sort of just brush them all off saying, look, if we are so defeated that if we even come to a point where we have to worry about the limits of state power, in other words, if we ever come close to gaining state power, then, then we can have this discussion. I just feel like that's, uh, you know, I don't know. What are you re- relying on your future failure in order to uh, uh, avoid s- your these errors? Is that is, is that it? Are you saying basically, look, we're never going to take power, so don't worry? Or are you saying, I mean, are you really saying that when you take power, you're more likely than you are now to wrestle with these deeper issues? I mean, I, that seems ridiculous to me. Of course, you're not more likely to wrestle with the these issues when you actually have power, you're, there are lots of motivations for you not to look in that direction when you have power. And apparently there are lots of motivations for you not to look in that direction when you're trying to take it. So do you, um, I just actually seeing, seeing as we're on that topic of, um, Adam Proctor's interview with Adolf Reed, um, yeah. the, the part of that interview that really stuck out for me was, was, was where he called the call for reparations a recruiting slogan for the KKK. Um, wow! Yeah, yeah. Um, Who said that? Adam or Adolf Reed? Uh, Adolf Reed. Yeah, of course. Adam wouldn't dare, but yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Um, what's your reaction to that? Do you do you, I, what I think you, do your thoughts on reparations as a as a general proposition? Because this is going to be debated uh, later this week at the DSA convention. Well, I don't think Adolf Reed's completely wrong. Mm. I mean, I do think that it is will be used as a recruiting tool. If, if anything like reparations were to happen, it would definitely have uh, you know, an unintended con- consequence of empowering the KKK. Yeah. But, okay, 
So did the election of Obama, and so did a lot of strides forward for racial, you know, equality and and progress. So there's always an, a reaction. Mm. So the question is, is it worth it? Right. Right. I mean, do you have such gains from reparations that the fact that you're stoking the fires of racial um, envy and and uh, yeah, I'll just leave it there. Um, it, you know, will it will it be worth it? And I don't know. I, I tend to think that if you're looking for structural change, reparations won't do the trick. They for them to do the trick, it they would that would never happen because it would be so devastating. You might as well. You're going to need a revolution to get enough money uh, you know, out of the state. For reparations to actually do the trick, you're talking about major, yeah, major uh, changes. You're talking about taking people's property away from them, yeah, uh, you know, for real reparations uh, to occur. Um, and the other thing is, if you take people's property away from them and redistribute it, you're still leaving the institutions and the uh, exactly. economic system in place that's yeah. unequal. And all you're doing is leveling the, you know, you're just rearranging the upper classes, but you're not really rearranging the structure of society. Um, so eventually so, it washes out and you are sort of back to where you started from. I think so. I did, but, but okay. So I'm not on that level. I'm not for reparations. On the other hand though, I like reparations as a rallying cry more than I like, um, than I like police violence. That's yeah. the primary thing, which is yeah. really um, maybe a little strange, but I feel like the way the focus is turned on police violence is particularly inept, and because uh, it because it doesn't have enough of a structural analysis to ever do anything about the police violence. So um, maybe it could, uh, if it was interracial and a, a reformist project for. Um, altering the powers of the police and, you know, trying to do something about police brutality and police violence overall. Like, for instance, if you just had a project to disarm the cops, mm -hmm. um, that might really do quite a lot. But it, you'd ha it would probably have to come along with uh, disarming the American population, right? right. There would have to be some major gun control for that to work. So uh, I, I think that a lot of what goes on in the name of racial politics in this country is mostly symbolic and reparations sim symbolizes at least a turn towards the economy again, at least saying, look, our problems are uh, economic as well as social. And so, you know, in that way, I support reparations over uh, the focus on police violence. So, uh, we're coming closer to the end of the show, I suppose. And I, I did want to make sure that before we parted, we would talk a little bit about um, Angela Nichols' Kill All Normies. Yeah. And um, yeah, I mean, I, I don't know how free a hand you have in your own um, mind there to, 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 to make some observations about it. But it seems like yeah. one of the most common points raised about it in the reviews is... is uh, you know, she she's talking obviously about the rise of call out culture, and um, uh, I think the reviews all sort of agree that the the book is a really helpful corrective to to sort of draw attention to the corrosive nature of call out culture. Um, mm -hmm. And Nagel seems to argue that that call out culture, or what she sometimes calls Tumblr culture, is a kind of a a reflex. It's um, the primary advocates or primary practitioners of call-out culture, at least in the academic sphere, seemingly, uh, in her mind, are kind of at a point where they don't think major social transformation is possible anymore. So they're kind of coming at this uh, from a, a you know what she calls even a decadent perspective. You know that 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 ID politics is a kind of a complacent politics. Uh, they've absolved themselves of the need to think strategically about any kind of social transformation. So in some ways, um, I think that's a, you know, a, a fascinating thesis. And uh, I, I'm, I'm persuaded, you know, I think it's a great book. Um, yeah. But I'm, 
I'm just wondering, you know, I'm not fully sure that the account explains the degree of intense emotionality that seems to be directed towards the old left sometimes. Um, for example, we hear arguments sometimes that in order to be allies, white working class men must shut up, listen, amplify, and that progress can only be made if we center the most subaltern or oppressed subject. And I'm just curious, you know, how, how is it a kind of um, a, a cognitive dissonance of some sort, but that that they can't see how impractical that kind of strategic proposition actually is? Um, and are they, is it that they're afraid that if somehow capitalism was posed as a priority and are organizing that these white working class men would suddenly start advocating strategies that would hurt their interests, like, like say, ban affirmative action or, or delay the agenda of police reform? I'm just curious, you know, like, where does this intense kind of understanding that there's no way for... Um, a solidarity or a comradeship to emerge between these different groups? So there was two questions. One was about the limits of Angela Nagel's book, right? Whether yeah. or not it went far enough. And then the other was about why do certain types of leftists make these kinds of claims about who can speak and who, who should shut up and listen? Yeah. Um, so I'm going to just put – look, I'm going to say this about Angela Nagel and her book – this was her first book. It does what it does very well. She's a, a brilliant writer. She's uh, destined to go on, I think, to become a mainstream voice uh, mm -hmm. on the left. And uh, I expect her next book to be coming out with a major New York press. Um, you know, the only thing wrong with uh, Kill All Normies, uh, as far as I'm concerned, were, was uh, our uh, copy editors let too many typos go through on the first printing. And that was <laughs> our fault. So I'm thrilled with with Angela Nagel and I'm thrilled to have been able to have the opportunity to, and the honor to publish her book it, but does it does it is it the end of the road does it answer all the problems of the left no it just points out to one particular problem and uh it's I think it's really fair to critique her book and to say where her politics need to go next or where we think our politics need to go next or what the implications of her book's book might be that she might have missed all that's how you should treat a book like hers right so i'm really i'm really glad for the kinds of critiques that we've been getting from places like in these times in the new republic and, and other places um and uh, yeah so i'll just leave that there the 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 question about are groups that are forming around racial equality mm-hmm uh, nervous about taking on something like trying to overcome capitalism because they fear their communities will suffer the most if that goes wrong or even if it starts to go well. Yes, I think people are, not everyone, but yeah, I think that there's a legitimate concern there. I had a, um, I went on a, a cable access show with a, a black trans activist um, who had been involved with the counter protests against a supposed free speech rally that had happened in Portland a couple of days after two men were killed on the Max train yeah. by a, so, so, apparently a, some sort of white nationalist. Um, so are people of color concerned about escalating political violence and trying to ups the, like rock the boat substantially. Yes. And did this woman tell you me after our, our conversation that mm. whenever white people get a cold, the black people get pneumonia. Yeah. Yeah. She did. And, and she said, look, you know, I'm, I'm, I, I, I like you socialists. I, I agree with you, but I'm, you scared the hell out of me. Really? You know? Yeah. And, you know, what am I supposed to say to that? Oh, no, you don't. I mean, in fact, it's it's not universally the case that when uh, white people suffer, black people are suffering more. And lately in the United States, you know, like longevity rates for the white people have been right. declining and uh, black community, it's stagnant. It's like it's it's flat. Right. It hasn't improved, but it is not getting worse. OK, so literally that's not always true but that that's not even the point the point is that is there a feeling that they're that that uh, amongst the most vulnerable that they're the most vulnerable yes and and so 
what that should tell us, though, is also that being vulnerable, being trod upon, doesn't always translate into being radical. That's not, you know, that doesn't, you know, it doesn't mean you should ignore the vulnerable. And it doesn't mean that when people uh, who are really living through the worst aspects of our society manage to start to politically organize that they shouldn't be given priority and listened to. They absolutely should be, okay? They're, the idea that we should listen to, to marginal voices when they appear and really give, make sure that they are given a platform is absolutely spot on. There's no way around it. The, the difficulty is, and shut up and don't critique what they say. That's... Mm. That's where you go way off the rails. If you listening to and engaging with all sorts of voices and prioritizing those voices is important. Yeah. But if you're not going to critique and, and, and debate, then all you're doing is uh, patronizing people. Because, yeah, and let's face it, what, is, what really goes on there is a few people who have some power and, and, and influence will then really dictate the terms of uh, the yeah. politics. And they'll do it with the cover of some racial identity or yeah. gender identity and say to any of their critics, shut up. And it yeah. won't actually matter what the race or gender of their critics are. Once uh, once you're a critic of them, then you're on, this, on the white side. It, it's, so it's a twisted politics. But, um, but yes, yeah, you know, it's born out of real problems and it's just a very bad solution. So – uh, Doug, you know, one of the, the things that's kind of come uh, directed towards the book um, by Marxist theorists is the idea that the, the book is somewhat ungrounded. And I, I myself have been confused by this idea because um, it doesn't really square with my own take. I mean, to me, Nagel is extremely explicit in her intellectual debts to the likes of Fisher, to the likes of Lash. Um, but I think I've got two questions here uh, about the book, and maybe you can help me understand, you know, you, having talked to her yourself, maybe you have an insight into this. Um, you know, first, if Lash and Fisher are the theorists we are turning to to carry us out of this mess, to what extent should we also perhaps subject these thinkers to critique too? I mean, it's not hard if you're familiar with their work to see a distinct kind of techno-dystopian element in their work. And while it's easy yeah. to get upset about the more ridiculous elements of Californian ideology and neoliberal op optimism for, for network life, I think there's also a, I mean, I, I'd like to reserve some sense that there's an emancipatory potential in cybernetic technologies as well. I mean, just to pick mm -hmm. for an example, Hart and Negri get a hard time for this kind of attitude as well. And I think they're often misread as naive, but importantly, they're not identity theorists. I mean, they're not... Um, you know, avant-garde, um, frustrated hippies. They're, they, they aren't approaching the internet as a great epistemological experiment that these uh, sort of early cyber-utopians did. There's a much right. more tentative sense instead that the progress of the cyber age will require a strategy of democratization or a sort of a, a taking the internet back, uh, so to speak. Mm -hmm. So, I mean, what do you have to say about that? Or do you, do you have a thought? Yeah, well, first of all, if I were to line up uh, like a death battle between theorists and on the one side it was Hart and Negri, I certainly want to wouldn't want to put uh, Christopher Lash on the other side against them. Right. Okay. <laughs> you know yeah, yeah, yeah. that yeah. that I don't for because I don't think Lash would know what to do with them and and <laughs> um and uh, the the Lash's critique is so different than they're just not talking in the same domain. I would probably put Zizek and. Uh, you know, I don't know, it's some like maybe Postone on mm -hmm. the other side against Hart and Negri because that's okay. uh, that Moish Postone would be a good, I think, uh, cr critic of theirs. And has um, been, I think, in the past, yeah. Yeah. So because, you know, with what you're talking about, the, the problems I have with Hart and Negri are really about their conceptions of capital and not about um, the kinds of cultural criticism that uh, Christopher Lash uh, marshals. So, so like, okay, Lash, yeah, there's a, there's a, even a reactionary component to Lash's critique. I'm not right. deeply scholared on, you know, I have not studied Lash deeply. I read uh, the, the Culture of Narcissism years mm -hmm. ago and mm -hmm. reread some of it recently. But 
yeah, I, I like Christopher Lash because um, he speaks to the symptoms of the left and he gives a cultured and informed and intelligent response to those symptoms. Um, he is good at pointing out some of the hypocrisies and failures of especially sort of mainstream social democratic liberalism. Okay, and its conceptions of progress. Yeah. I don't know if his grasp on Marx is, is, you know, what I would say it's inadequate, uh, you know, to be more fair. It's certainly not the same as mine, right? <laughs> so, so, um, so, yeah. So, would I look to Christopher Lash and Mark Fisher to lead us out of this current moment? No. Would yeah. I look to Christopher Lash and, you know, Mark Fisher, is, is he even fairly being you know, tied to Lash, I'm not sure, but mm. when I look to them, to critiques of them, to serious engagement with their work, to reconsiderations of their works and new critiques of their work be part of uh, what bleeds us out of this current moment, yes. Yeah. I do think that they're important th people to reconsider today, but I don't think that they're, they have some answer that we've missed. You know, they have a, a take on the problem that we need to reconsider. Doug, before you go, I just wanted to quickly ask you, um, we've mentioned it already earlier on in the show, um, but this week we have the DSA convention coming up. And uh, I just wondered if in your sort of experience of following the left, observing the left for so many years, you have any advice for listeners who might be attending this con convention and um, what, what you'd kind of urge them to think about what attitudes they should keep close to their hearts as they engage in possibly what's going to be one of the biggest left-wing conventions in modern history. Wow. Um, no pressure. <laughs> <laughs> well, I would just say that people should um, really make an attempt to hold on to their critical faculties, even as they allow themselves to get excited by what is a, a, a big upsurge in left-wing uh, sentiment and support in the United States. The, uh, the uh, success that the DSA has seen since the election of Trump and before, uh, and the success that a podcast like Chapo Trap House has had, is not to be sneered at. Right. And it's certainly not to be dismissed. It is a significant thing. But it's important to remain fully engaged rather than simply to go with the current. Mm. And that's all I'd say. Not that not that I would in any way want to, you know, rain on anyone's parade or, or dismiss anything. But I would say really um, – it will only do the DSA uh, a service if their membership is as critically engaged and uh, as seriously engaged as they can be. And that means taking your own sensibility and your own thoughts really seriously and not just putting things aside in the name of uh, you know, going along with what uh, someone who's charismatic and, and um, also quite knowledgeable like Adolf Reed has to say. If, if you have a critique of Adolf Reed or you have a critique of someone else, you should express it and mm -hmm. think it through. Not, but that doesn't mean shutting anyone down or call, you know, mm -hmm. you know, being organizing against the organization. It just means engage critically. Yeah. Well, well thank you, Douglas Lane, for those parting words. Uh, I hope people will take them to heart. Um, I really appreciated having you on the show. Thank you for coming on, and um, hope we can get you back on again. Yeah, I would love to come back on. Thanks, Doug.